Welcome to Physician Interrupted. I'm Dr. Kernan Mannion, and this is actually a podcast 6B. I know that sounds really quite enticing, doesn't it? Uh, and uh, it is part two of the organizational and sociocultural stress component of the clinician distress matrix discrimination, harassment, and the bully culture of medicine. I got feedback from people that said, you know, uh, these podcasts are meant to be kind of short and crisp. And uh, so I thought that even though the article, part six article, might have been quite lengthy and uh, only tolerable for those who can uh, accept a longer read, we best do a shorter piece on these in the Clinician Distress Matrix podcast. So this is part 6B of the overall Clinician Distress Matrix. Now, in this latter segment, we're going to be focusing on the bully culture of medicine. It probably comes as no great revelation that a survival of the fittest mindset has permeated U.S. medicine. Now, in an earlier era, when medicine was an esteemed profession and its career opportunities promised a well-rewarded lifetime job, accompanied by social prestige and coveted income, the rigors to get in med school and then a desirable residency were quite significant. And so, too, the striving to position oneself to get into a desirable residency were significant. So too, the striving to get oneself into a desirable practice setting. To accomplish these, you had to prove your mettle. Now in the process, institutions, therefore, set pretty rigorous standards. These were accompanied by an almost boot camp survival mentality enforced by drill sergeants in white coats, your professors and attendings, who held control over your career advancement. However, despite the changed status of physicianhood being significantly less esteemed by the general population, which seems to have turned into an entitled Dr. Google, and also offering fewer rewards, but let's add here, considerably more demands, the bully culture still operates Hospital and corporate group practice politics still attract those who know how to play the game and achieve their business objectives at all costs. And unfortunately, as is seen elsewhere in the competitive corporate world, such a role may attract some whose narcissistic style fosters a toxic leadership mindset. Toxic leadership enables a toxic culture where bullying and a spirit of meanness predominates. You see this in numerous settings, the interaction between the non-MD, MBA-style healthcare leaders who are very driven to make their healthcare institutions viable, and then the non-MBA non-administrative style medical staff with the MDs and DOs and, and uh, um, you know, PhD uh, RNs, uh, their um, uh, ruling. And there's this discord that goes on, a disconnect. Likewise, the medical leadership itself of a high-powered practice group 
and then its general membership of those physicians. And likewise, you'll see it in the conflict between physicians and mid-levels, PAs and nurse practitioners, and also the tension between physicians and nurses. And this is just but a few of the settings where this bully culture and its associated tension exist. Now, of course, the effect of such a cultural mindset seldom contributes to people's well-being. Well, that is, except for the bullies and their cronies who are running the show. Now, two areas where this bully culture is on full display happen to be in the medical regulatory arena. So we're going to talk about two of these areas. The first, sham peer review. That's sham peer review and sham performance appraisal. Now let me stress here that not all peer review and not all performance appraisal is sham. The majority of institutions are really quite ethical and professional in their dealings. However, there are some within medicine who do not proceed in that same vein of ethics and professionalism. Now, in the prior article, when we did the piece on the MRTC, the Medical Regulatory Therapeutic Complex, we referenced the stress of dealing with state medical boards, physician health programs, and physician, I mean, and, and, and physician privilege credentialing entities like healthcare institutions that hire docs and nurses. Now, there are unethical players, well, pockets of them, let's put it that way, of, of unethical players in medicine who may resort to a bullying tactic to rid themselves of a colleague or a member of the staff whom they do not wish to have on their staff. There's a lot of um, insider politics, if you will, of in uh, in-group and out-group uh, psychology. Now, one vicious tactic that is used is that of a sham peer review. Now, sham means that it is really a false peer review. And what happens here is that in that sham peer review, one is alleging that that physician or nurse's care is deficient in some way. And there's a gang-up phenomenon that goes on. Now, in the article, I uh, cite a wonderful resource that I want to call your attention to, and that is of Dr. Larry Huntoon, who has made it his specialty to examine sham peer review and its variants. He has an excellent series of articles, so be sure to visit the article, the blog post, uh, that has the footnotes that reference Dr. Huntoon's extraordinarily well-researched articles on sham peer review. Now, a similar tactic is actually used in training institutions where the process is referred to as an annual performance evaluation. That's to be expected. It's kind of like an annual grade that you get. And such reviews are not only conducted on PGYs, postgraduate year people, but on faculty as well. And they can be used in a very hostile manner. 
to thwart the advancement of a PGY resident or of a faculty member for that matter and to disparage their reputation. Now, outside of the medical profession, in both of these arenas, sham peer review and sham performance appraisal, these entities are considered to be upstanding, their ethics and integrity not questioned, and they're given great deference, including in the administrative and civil court systems. However, as is well documented, there is little to no oversight of these processes. And individual clinician appeals, even with counsel, are generally futile. It's a tough hill to climb. So one begins to wonder the wisdom uh, of relying on fairness and integrity in these settings then becomes increasingly questionable. But needless to say, the stress one experiences as the subject of a hostile sham peer review or a sham performance appraisal, this stress is extraordinary. And it's compounded, of course, by the cost of retaining sufficiently knowledgeable counsel who will try to protect your rights. And it is an unfair playing field. Now, the second area that I want to bring up here in terms of understanding the bully culture of medicine is in the exercise of a false diagnostic assessment, a sham fitness for duty evaluation. With the rise of the so-called physician health program movement, which really did seem to have a genuinely benevolent origin in the late 70s, early 80s perhaps, and its close ties with licensing and credentialing authorities a deeply disturbing trend is emerging. Sham mental health evaluations performed by these exclusively contracted physician health programs, or PHPs, under the false designation of fitness for duty, or psychiatric assessment, or simply well-being screenings, are subjecting untold hundreds, if not thousands, of physicians yearly to such invasive psychiatric diagnostic evaluations which deprive them of their civil rights and also mark them as damaged goods for the remainder of their careers. This movement, organized now as a nonprofit federation with each member becoming being a non-profit corporation generally, and that, that federation having no ethical charter holding its members responsible for compliance with ethics or law. This entire entity operates with utterly no oversight or legal accountability. This is especially worrisome as due to the PHP's often secretive contracting with boards and medical societies, 
the member PHP organizations of this national federation operate as an exclusive fitness for duty evaluator for nearly every state medical board within the United States. And these medical boards themselves operate virtually untethered from any governmental oversight and enjoy near total immunity from litigation. Now, the combined absence of oversight and accountability, in, in addition to the invariably deferential treatment by the civil court system, can only serve as an incredibly rich medium for the opportunity for insider dealing and unfairness, if not overt corruption. Now, having interviewed at length well over 500 physicians in depth, I can attest to the profound abuses of due process that have occurred, and in many cases, the falsity of the pseudo-legitimate mental health evaluation findings which are presented to the MLB, the Medical Licensing Board, as definitive diagnoses. And these legitimate-sounding findings are then used to justify mandatory referral by the board on order to a, open-quote, preferred evaluation center whose four-day multi-person evaluation process, indeed a questionable one, often assisted by polygraph interrogation, can cost upwards of $10,000 out of pocket. The findings from that non-neutral, non-peer-reviewed process may then be used to enable the state medical licensing board to order that physician then into an unusually prolonged, quote-unquote, treatment. Again, at yet another, quote-unquote, preferred program. Now, the term is a bit of a crafty euphemism, as one is forbidden from going to any other than the preferred, i.e. in-network, privately owned, proprietary programs that the PHP and the MLB have designated. Now, that this quasi-state agency is allowed to operate in such a non-overseen, unlawful manner and to harm so many physicians while infallibly diagnosing them with any variety of mental or substance abuse-related conditions while also depriving them of their due process rights, their rights to contest such a bogus process, continues to boggle the mind. I guess it should come as no surprise that anyone subjected to such a heinous human rights violation, one which also threatens to end their hard-earned careers and their very livelihoods, causes not only extreme distress but embeds the virtually irreversible bitterness of moral injury. Now, another form of the bully culture of medicine is that of disability discrimination. So lastly, but certainly not least important, 
we've got to take note that there is a pervasive underlying trend in medicine that so many of us have bought into for the longest time, that medicine has been hostile toward those with any sort of perceived imperfection or disability. Sometimes it seems as though American medicine has not yet become aware that discrimination in employment on the basis of disability is explicitly prohibited. But evidence exists that MLBs are well aware of the Americans with Disabilities Act and its prohibitions against discrimination on the basis of any preconceived job incapacity due to their stereotyped notions about impediment or alternate ability or alter ability, be it physical or mental. You see, that's in the prelude to the ADA that is well worth reading, which attempts to diminish the impact of the stereotyping that is being done toward those who have any sort of mental or physical handicap. Significant barriers to full engagement prevails throughout much of U.S. medicine. While one generally imagines disability as a physical limitation, there's also a powerful discriminatory attitude, a discriminatory animus toward those who have experienced emotional illnesses and abuse or addiction of, to substances. And stereotypical beliefs are often applied to those who have had a history of depression or substance abuse and those who are in recovery. Now, disturbingly, almost 50% of state medical licensing boards still demand answers to invasive questions about physicians, licensees, mental health, and substance abuse history on their licensing applications and renewals. These questions are clearly impermissible under the ADA, as demonstrated by numerous court decisions. Nevertheless, due to nearly complete failure of action by state government and by medical societies, which should be demanding comportment with federal and state law. These impermissible questions continue to be asked. But let me underscore something here that is vital to understand. What many do not understand is that it's not simply the impermissibility of the questions that is problematic, as intrusive as they are, and prone toward lack of confidentiality protection. It's not just that. It's what happens to the licensee after they have answered in the affirmative about any of these matters. They're generally referred for non-neutral discriminatory evaluation customarily at the MLB's exclusively contracted PHP, which conducts a screening assessment and then makes a determination uh, or perhaps conjectures only a hypothesis of the presence of an illness or impairment, which then, via its recommendation, quote-unquote, to the MLB itself, a virtual board order, subjects the physician to costly, if not 
clearly bankrupting hurdles to prove their non-impairment. Res ipsa loquitur, that's a famous phrase in law, the thing speaks for itself, best sums up the rights violation this compromise, this, uh, this uh, comprises. As referenced previously in terms of sham performance appraisal, sham peer review and sham fitness for duty assessments, the psychological distress resulting from such a process is itself likely magnitudes more harmful than whatever alleged condition might have prompted this witch hunt, if indeed any existed to even warrant initiating such. One can reasonably predict that anyone subjected to such a combined civil and human rights violation, one which also threatens the viability of their careers and their entire livelihoods on the falsely contrived due process denied basis of alleging mental or addictive illness impairment, will suffer the physical and mental consequences truly comparable to that of sustained life-threatening stress. And given the multi-component betrayals of fairness and the complicity via silence of organizations that should have advocated, indeed demanded, accountability and fairness, the toxic bitterness and psychological retreat from life that are the hallmarks of moral injury compound the distress even further. Underlying and fueling much of this diverse discrimination is a prevalent bullying mentality that is rooted in anger. This bullying dynamic, so often interwoven with narcissistic psychopathy, seldom pertains to legitimate enforcement of the rigorous standards of medicine and of public safety. Rather, it seems this permeating undercurrent of hostility is often selfishly motivated, pompously judgmental, and at its heart anti-competitive, driven by a craving for the acquisition and exertion of power and the attainment of both economic advantage and prestige. And yet again, this malignant dynamic, so destructive, mirrors that which is going on in society as a whole. In conclusion, U.S. medicine is at a major crossroads. As we've seen in the articles and podcasts comprising this series, while burnout is a most timely and useful construct to help mobilize all within healthcare around endorsing a healthier culture of medicine, it's become a catch-all term. And though a convenient conceptualization, the connotation that it captures all that's causing clinician distress is really a dangerously flawed one. It doesn't encompass all of clinician distress. Numerous separate stress phenomena are resulting in their own unique stress response syndromes, and each of these syndromes has a characteristic array of symptoms. 
and the various mental and physical and behavioral manifestations of each of these syndromes often share the syndromic manifestations with the burnout stress syndrome. But that doesn't mean they're the same thing. And they also add to already existent burnout symptoms array. So just as in complex illness, when multiple pathological processes are co-occurring and require their own treatment, so too with clinician distress. Ignoring the concurrence of these does a dual disservice. The burnout remedy is doomed, and thus burnout remains disabling. And on top of that, the concurrent stress syndromes, whatever they may be, moral injury, PTSD, mood disorder, grief, these all remain unaddressed and thus leave the clinician in a state of both that separate stress syndrome and burnout and therefore of progressively wearying and intensifying distress. And as we in clinical medicine all well know, the deleterious effect of the persistence of untreated illness, especially that of complex illness where we haven't gotten to the cause and the multiple syndromes that are operational, the deleterious effect is not just due to that organ system's diminished function, whether it's cardiac disease or kidney disease, in fact, what happens is that the patient with complex illness suffers a progressive whittling down of the compensatory resources that were all at work trying to hold the patient intact. And these compensatory resources, when they get depleted, you rapidly see a decline. So we're a major crossroads in U.S. medicine as both an economically viable profession responding to a societal need and as a profession of expert and compassionate healers whose training comes at extremely great effort and cost. The composite distress afflicting our, afflicting our clinicians has to be comprehensively addressed if we hope to maintain any viable healthcare profession. And I believe the time is ripe for a radically honest discussion in depth about these diverse current dynamics that define the culture of medicine and contribute to clinician distress. That culture of medicine needs to be examined thoroughly, both as it exists right now and as we wish to create it, because we can. However, it may take even further distress before the medical community as a whole is courageous enough to lay down on the analyst's couch and explore these deep-seated dysfunctional currents which thwart its well-being. In the upcoming last of the Clinician Distress Matrix series. We'll be doing a wrap-up. We'll recap some key themes, and we'll also explore some potential approaches. And your input on this will be so greatly appreciated. Please know that the articles in this series are all available as podcasts, just as this podcast is, 
and they generally follow the text of the article, although there is some improv that goes on with them. So simply look for the headphone icon on the table of contents if you prefer to listen to the podcast version. And don't forget to click one of the red buttons below to either comment or share the uh, uh, piece uh, or to make sure that you register to get notified for future articles and updates. It's been an honor to present to you. Thank you so much for listening and I look forward to sharing more with you in the upcoming last session seven of this Clinician Distress Matrix series. Until then, stay well. And to those clinicians who are listening, may you continue to do the excellent work that you have been doing with greatest appreciation. Mm -hmm.